Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Everyone should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is God's word. Let's pray and then we'll look at this passage together. Father God, none of us are who we pretend to be. None of us are who we want to be. None of us are who we should be. But we thank you, Father, that through the Lord Jesus there is forgiveness for all that we, all that we are that we shouldn't be. Thank you that through your Spirit there is the power for transformation. And thank you also that you put us in communities where we can be loved and built up and helped. And we pray that your word tonight would be fruitful to make us the sort of community where people grow and change for the better. For your son's sake we pray. Amen. In the year 423, a young man called Simeon, living in the area around Aleppo in Syria, went out into the desert. And he uh, set himself up on a platform six feet high. And he lived there for six years. He was convinced that if he wanted to draw near to God, if he wanted to to develop a, a spiritual life and to commune with God's Holy Spirit, he needed to get away from the hustle and bustle of daily life and the mess and disappointment of other people and just be cut off and alone with God. He was the, one of the first of the, the so-called desert ascetics. But people were quite taken with uh, Simeon Stylites, as he became known for living on top of a style, and he found that eventually people came out to him for advice and help, and so he found he had to to change things. So he got the help of a few other people and erected a 60-foot pole after six years, uh, with a six-foot by six-foot platform on top, which is worth about £400,000 in zone one. and uh, take a single bed, that'll do. Uh, And he lived there for the next 30 years in the desert, a little bar on the top to stop him falling off. And his life on a tall pole has cast a very, very long shadow on spirituality. There is this sort of innate thinking that I think all of us buy into to one degree or another, that the truly spiritual life is a life of seclusion away from the world. Spirituality, when you, when you say the word, you do not hear London traffic in your head. You do not see crowds of people. You see silence. And you see seclusion. And that is tragically wrong. 
God is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is inherently, fundamentally relational. And whenever God calls you into relationship with himself, when you become a Christian, when God calls you into relationship with himself, he always calls you into relationship with his people, with others. And the hallmark of true spirituality is not just a restored relationship with God, where I commune with God, but also a restored relationship with others, with people. True spirituality is worked out in community. And we read in Galatians chapter 5 last week, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yeah, yeah, we've heard that before. Look at that list. How many of those can you do on your own? Well, it's a lot easier to be forbearing, patient, if I don't have any real people to be patient with. But you can't really grow in forbearance if there are no people around to annoy you. You can't really grow in love when the only person you have to love is wonderful me. You can only exercise the fruit of the Spirit in community. You see, sin turns us in on ourselves. One of the the fundamental characteristics of sin is to turn away from not just God, but others and in on me. Me, my world, my view, my values, my desires become everything. And the fruit of the Spirit's work is to turn us back out from ourselves to a fuller, richer life. A life connected with God up on the throne. And a life connected with other people. And God works out his sanctification, that is our growth in godliness. He works out our sanctification within the relationships that he puts us, within community. Sanctification is a communal activity. Sanctification is a communal activity. So just a couple of points for you. Firstly, the Spirit strengthens us to bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6 verses 1 to 6. Now there is a crucial tension going on in these verses. In chapter 5, Paul has explained that if the Holy Spirit truly lives in us, then the fruit of the Spirit will appear through us. If we're rooted in the Spirit, the fruit will grow. But although the Holy Spirit, as we, as we learned last week, helps us to sin less, he doesn't make us sinless. Not in this life. And Paul now addresses how the people of the Spirit should deal with the sins that still lurk in all, well, certainly in my heart, and I'll bet in yours too. Uh, How should we deal with that? And wonderfully, there is no hypocrisy, no mask wearing, but there is real help and real change. And we're not alone. We're not alone. The Spirit enables us to bear one another's burdens. The Spirit works through the community, through the people around you, the church family. That's how the Spirit works to stop you being so sinful. Look at verses 1 to 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The word caught for caught in sin is literally overtaken. A sin that's overtaken you. Now, when, I was a, when you're a teenage boy, 
um, I'm not sure it's the same as a teenage girl, but certainly as a teenage boy, the word danger is basically a synonym for fun. It's just the way it works. Anything, anything that's forbidden and dangerous, that must be enjoyable. I remember going on holiday, and there was a, a group of us guys, um, and we were out at a beach with a, it was a spit between a, a small bay and then the open sea. And we were warned not to swim in the bay because there were very, very strong currents. So we swam in the bay. And, well, no, we didn't. To start with, we, we stood in the water up to our knees. It's not that strong. It's absolutely fine. You know, you can paddle and splash about and it's all right. And, and you can float about a bit and it's quite fun just feeling yourself being carried along by this current. And yeah, it's, it's all absolutely fine. But I tell you what, I'll never forget that feeling when we swam out a little bit too far and suddenly you just swept along and there was absolutely no way you could swim back. Thankfully, uh, we were swept through a narrow, narrow channel so we could swim to the side and climb out before we got taken to the open sea. But it's an awful feeling when you think it's all right, you think you know what you're doing, and before you know it, you've been swept out, overtaken, overcome. But it's also something that we all know, if we're honest, in the battle with our sinful desires. You know, you seem to be going all right in the Christian life. You're, you're plodding along, not perfect, but doing all right. But then you just dip your toe in dangerous waters. And there's no danger while, you know, your feet are firmly planted on the bottom. I mean, you're not going to be swept away in ankle-deep water, right? But gradually you get a little bit deeper. And then a bit deeper. It's not a problem. It's not what you think. And that becomes, look, okay, I know it's not great, but I'm handling it, okay? Just give me some space. Becomes... Look, I just don't know how to get out of this. Becomes, I want to live this way, and it's really none of your business, to be perfectly honest. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will probably have been on both sides of that conversation. You've been the friend watching someone you love make a series of just little bad decisions or fail to make the good decision they need to make. And gradually end up entangled, overtaken, caught in a sin they can't get out of. But let's be honest, we've all been on the other side too. Overtaken by sins, making excuses and unable to get free. And the right response of those who love one another is seen in verses 1 to 2. We bear one another's burdens. That means we don't leave a brother or sister to be swept away. And it takes courage to challenge somebody. That conversation never goes well because we build up self-justification to explain what we're doing and we lash out at those who confront us. And we, always, and we can always play the Christian get-out-of-jail-free card of you're being such a Pharisee. And no one can challenge me if they're being a Pharisee. It takes real courage to confront a friend. It's not an easy thing to do. But we do it because we love them more than we love what we get from the relationship. We do it because we love them more than we love what we enjoy about the relationship, what we get from it. It takes courage, but it takes more than just courage. It also takes compassion. We're told we're to restore them gently, verse 1. Now, the word restore is used for uh, rebuilding a wall or resetting a broken bone. It's painful, difficult, and takes time to heal. And so we need to be gentle because the truth is, I don't know about you, but... 
if people are harsh and judgmental towards me, I just don't listen. I don't care how right they are. I just don't listen because I don't want to. And so we need to be gentle with one another when we challenge and confront. We should also be gentle because, verse 1, it may not be long before it's me who's the one being confronted about my sins, for none of us is perfect. I may not be uh, falling into the same sin, I may not be sleeping with my girlfriend like the person I'm challenging, but I may be proud and hard and judgmental and just as much in need of confrontation. There's a, there's a realistic subtlety and an insight, I think, to, to verses 3 to 6 as he expands out uh, from the call to restore one another gently from sinful patterns of life. Uh, verse 3, if anyone thinks they are something when they're not, well, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Do you know what the most dangerous sin of all is? the most lethal sin, the sin that Christians should not tolerate. It's pride. And the reason that pride is the most dangerous sin is pride is the only one that can be growing while all the others are being killed. Because pride is just as happy in a Bible study as in a brothel. And while most other sins deepen our inward sense of guilt and shame and grow in us a desperate sense of our need for Jesus Christ and his salvation. Pride does the very opposite. Pride makes me feel like I don't need Jesus' salvation at all. And few things bolster our pride more than when it's others who are falling into sin and me who's continually having to pull them out of the swamp. We can so easily start to think, verse 3, that we're something. And the key, verse 4, there is not to compare, to stop comparing ourselves with others, especially with those who've fallen into sin. Instead, examine yourself. Consider your own actions, your own heart, your own motives. And if I'm going to make any comparison, compare up with Christ, and I'll soon kill my pride. Examine yourself. And verse 5, concentrate on bearing the load that God has given to you. There is a rightful sense of, of satisfaction, this verse says, in living out my own responsibilities, in being appropriately mature for how long I've been a Christian, so that I am, I'm able to shoulder the load that I should be shouldering. Now the word for, for load in verse 5 is different from burden in verse 2. The first was a crushing unbearable load. And we're to enjoy taking responsibility for our own loads. But we're also to help those who are crushed by unbearable burdens. And so back to verse 2. We fulfill the law of Christ when in love we seek to bear the burdens of others. Why do I say that? Because in love he took the unbearable burden of the death that my sin deserves. The judgment that should take me to hell for all eternity. He took that and he bore it so I can be free. And so anytime we, we help one another, anytime we see somebody struggling under a burden they can't bear, whether it's uh, whether they're, they're fallen into sin or, it's the, or just the desperate difficulties of life that they're going through anytime we step in and help to shoulder that burden where we're behaving in a Christ-like way and we're fulfilling his law 
Verse 6 carries on. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. How does that fit here? I think it's that central to gently restoring and bearing burdens is teaching one another the truth of God's word. And so we're called to honour those who do this, whether it's those who teach full-time, whether those who lead the small groups, who teach in Sunday school, or whether it's just the informal encouragement that we offer one another when we meet up, when we talk after the service. But we're to honour those who teach us, those who instruct us, those who encourage us. There was a major poll done uh, a few years ago. There are polls being done all the time, but this was quite a striking one. 30% of Londoners said that for them, a very serious problem in their lives was loneliness. 30% of Londoners. That's, if you're good at maths, quite a big number. Something in the millions. An awful lot of people in a huge city full of people say they're very, very lonely. Everybody longs for community. When people arrive, it's one of the questions they always ask about the church. What's the community like? It's one of our buzzwords, one of our values in London. But the truth is that genuine community is a hard thing. You see, genuine community is not just a group of people who love me and support me and fulfill my need for belonging and help bear my burdens. It's also a group of people whose burdens I bear. Genuine community is not just the Instagram picture of the mates on holiday with a stunning backdrop or having an absolute blast. Genuine community is also the hours spent sitting silently with a friend in the darkness of depression when they have absolutely nothing to offer except the black hole of their endless need. Genuine community is also the, the awkward conversation when I can't celebrate what you want me to celebrate because I, I think it's out of step with what God commands. Genuine community is the willingness to be shouted at or ghosted because I won't bless everything you want me to bless because I think it's wrong and I'm willing to say so gently but strongly. And it works the other way too. You see, I can't have genuine community unless there are people I allow to speak into my life people I listen to when they challenge my attitudes and actions, people who change some of my decisions, people I let in enough to to know the details of my life and I listen when they challenge and confront me. God designed friendships, the people around us, to be the tool for our sanctification Uh, We said uh, last week that the Holy Spirit is like the engine in the car, enabling us to drive along the road of God's law, the road that leads to life and freedom and fulfillment. And the Holy Spirit is the engine that that empowers the car, that uh, provides the motivation, the desire and the power to go God's way and to fight against our sinful desires. If we run with the analogy a little bit, uh, the church community, if you like, is passengers, backseat drivers in the car. We all love a backseat driver. But the, the church community, if you like, good friends, real friends here, are like passengers in the car who, when we're tempted to drive off a dangerous path and leave God's way of freedom, they warn us and they remind us how good it is, how freeing it is and how full it is to live God's way. They're the best sort of backseat drivers there are. We are to teach and speak God's truth to one another. 
And we're to see the inevitable conflict that will arise, because let's be honest, it never goes quite well when this happens. But we're to see the inevitable conflict that arises as a tool for knocking the ugly lumps off us, for sanding down some of our rough edges. Look, some of us here tonight are shouldering unbearable burdens in the fight with sin because either we're too proud or we're too ashamed to ask for the help that we need. God never meant for you to fight sin on your own. God has not designed you to be strong enough to do it all on your own. And thankfully you don't need to. God's plan is to change you into the glorious, happy, fulfilled being that he always intended you to be before sin ruined our lives. And his plan was always to use others, the people around you tonight, to help that happen. There you go. It's the first thing we see from verses 1 to 6. The Spirit strengthens us to bear one another's burdens. And then secondly, from 7 to 10, the Spirit warns us we will reap what we sow. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Verses 1 to 6 are all about how the, Christ, the Spirit works through the Christian community, the church, to help us fight sin. Verse 7 to 8 remind us of my responsibility to fight sin too. It's not that others do it on my behalf. We all fight sin. It is my responsibility not to believe the lies, to see through them and to resist the dehumanizing, destructive influence of sin and the misery it brings not only to me, but also through me to others. At the end of chapter 5, in the beginning of chapter 6, it seems to me that they answer the how question. How is it possible to live for Jesus when my desire to serve myself and indulge uh, the desires, as it puts it here, of the flesh, that means the sinful desires, how how can I serve Jesus when the desire to go the other way is so strong? And his answer was, well, the Holy Spirit, the engine that the Holy Spirit gives us, new power, new desires. So slowly but surely, we learn new patterns, new habits of life to turn away from sin and to turn towards loving God and serving others. That's the how. I think this verse answers a, a more cynical question, which is the why bother? Look, if God has done everything in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to qualify me for eternal life, If all my sin, past, present and future has been forgiven, then why bother fighting sin? When push comes to shove, when I'm really struggling to live for Jesus in in one area of life, then why do it? Why deny myself? Why go through the hardship and pain if I'm going to heaven whether I sin or not? It's a cynical question, but it's a real question. And the Bible, it seems to me, gives lots of noble motivations for, for why we should serve God, for why we should honour God, for why we should seek to love other people. It, it brings glory to God. It, in other words, it displays and brings praise to his character. It makes other people want to know about Jesus when they see the way we live. It brings delight to God. We can make him smile. What a wonderful motivation. It encourages others who are struggling to live for Christ when they see us doing it. It fulfills our ultimate purpose. It brings us reward in eternity 
It is the way, ultimately, of true freedom, of deepest fulfillment, and of everlasting happiness. And it shows that we're thankful to God for salvation. But extraordinarily, sometimes those motivations just aren't enough. Sometimes, look, the truth is sin just tastes better than godliness right now. And so we harden our hearts. And at times like that, the Bible also provides warnings that are more carrot, uh, more stick than carrot. God loves us enough that like a parent whose toddler is running towards a road, he will shout at us to, to get us back because he does not want us to run into the road of sin. And I would be very, very surprised if verses 7 to 8 weren't particularly important for some of us here tonight. What does sowing to the flesh mean? Sowing to the flesh means developing patterns of sin. It's that famous, um, I'm not sure what you call it, it's not a haiku or a ditty, by the Victorian essayist Charles Reed. Sow a thought, reap a deed. Sow a deed, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character and you will reap your destiny. See, there are two kinds of seed that you can sow. There are two kinds of road that you can walk down. There are two sets of habit that you can form in your life. There are sinful habits and there are godly habits, spiritual habits. And all of us, all the time, are sowing. All the time we're doing it. In the thoughts we nurture in our minds, cycling over them again and again, we're sowing one way or the other. In the way we speak to people and about people, we're sowing. In the way we speak about our future, our money, our time, we're sowing. In the things that we do and in the places we go, we're sowing. We're always sowing. And the point is, if you spend your time sowing orange seeds, do not expect to eat apples. It's obvious. And if you spend your time sowing sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful actions then don't expect to reap a harvest of righteousness. Don't expect to reap eternal life. John Stott writes on these verses, every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist. Every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying. Every time we look at porn rather than our Bible. Every time we take a risk which strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. Some Christians sow to the flesh every day and then wonder why they do not reap holiness. Holiness is a harvest. Whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what and where we sow. We must be careful. We must be careful. Our daily choices go to our eternal destiny. And God will not be mocked. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, will reap eternal life. We try to mock God 
I think. When we, when we think we can live sinful lives and then claim to be followers of Jesus and expect his eternal welcome, we won't. And not because you have to earn your way into heaven. The whole book of Galatians has been written to establish that you don't earn your way into heaven. You don't earn your way to heaven with good deeds. But, but he says if your life is just characterized by sinful deeds, that shows you don't really trust in Jesus at all. You can't claim, I trust in Jesus for my forgiveness. I follow Jesus. If you spend your time nurturing the very sins that cause Jesus to have to die for you. If you spend your time walking in the opposite direction. Some of us, some of us here look pretty good, but we're indulging secret sin. No one else knows. And that is mocking God. We're mocking God by playing at Christianity as if God doesn't see or his view doesn't matter. And do you know what the very, very worst thing that can happen to you is if you're indulging secret sin? It's that God lets you get away with it and no one finds out. That it remains undiscovered and continues to grow and develop roots. If you are secretly driving down the road called sin, the destination is death. And the very kindest thing God can do is let you have an almighty crash so that you stop, you wake up, and you can head the other way. Don't mock God. You can't fool him with your Sunday performance. None of us can. The one who holds your eternal destiny in his hands can see through every one of us. And so he calls each of us tonight, turn away from sin. Turn back to him. Turn back to the path of life and freedom. Sin is dangerous. Sin is deceitful. Sin is destructive and dehumanizing. It damages and diminishes you and it damages others through you. So be careful what you sow. For your sake and for the sake of those you love, heed God's warning tonight. Wonderfully, though, the same principle applies positively too. Look at the second half of verse 8. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will receive eternal life. Just as God sees every hidden sin, so he sees every hidden act of service. Every time we resist sin for his glory, he sees, he smiles, and he records, and one day he will lavish his rewards on us in an embarrassing way for the little that we have done for him. All those things that we do through the power of his spirit for the honor of his name and the good of his people, he will reward us for. So keep going, keep going. Verse nine, let's not become weary then in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Just up the road is the, the statue of Eros. Or if you want a wonderful London fact for dinner parties or delays on the tube. Uh, Do you know it shouldn't actually be called Eros? It was never meant to be called Eros, apparently. Um, Sir Alfred Gilbert, the sculptor, reputedly made a mistake. It should have been the statue of Ant Eros, Eros' brother in mythology. Because Eros is the the fickle god of romantic love, which is very self-serving. What do I get out of it? Do I love? 
But the statue was there to commemorate somebody who embodied Antiros. Antiros was the, was the god of other person focused love, of sacrificial love. And Eros is there to commemorate the life of Anthony Ashley Cooper, the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury, who tirelessly, once he became a Christian, gave himself to serve others. The Spirit drove him to live for other people, so much so that he was called the poor man's Earl for all he did to improve the lives of others in this country. And right now, he is enjoying his Lord's reward. The Spirit's work made him tireless to do good for others. Okay, uh, as we close, what does it mean for us to sow to the Spirit? Let's just think practically for a few seconds. What does it mean to sow to the Spirit? Well, I guess uh, a woman here would sow to the Spirit when she refuses to allow disagreements at church to fester, and instead she forgives freely, and she works to restore relationships rather than waiting for the others to do it. A man here sows to the Spirit when he denies himself some of the status symbols of his peers that they wear and that they enjoy. And instead, he gives generously to gospel ministry and to help the disadvantaged. An unmarried couple sow to the Spirit when they avoid being alone in a room together, even though it's blooming inconvenient, especially in winter, but they don't want to take a risk with sexual sin. A married couple sow to the Spirit when they stop selfishly looking to the other to serve them. And start working together in true spiritual partnership for the benefit of others. We all sow to the Spirit when we make time to develop and deepen our prayer lives. To get beyond just praying for my needs. And to pray out for the world. We sow to the Spirit when we love our friends and colleagues enough to share the gospel with them. Or invite them to church so they can hear about Jesus. We sow to the Spirit when we love our city and our world. And when we look to see where there are needs we might help to meet, where there are injustices we ought to stand up against, where there are voiceless people that we can speak for. All of us really tonight ought to have a sober think, perhaps when we get home. Pray for God's wisdom and ask him to show you, where am I sowing to the flesh? And why not ask a trusted friend, where do you think I'm in danger of doing that? And where can I invest more in sowing to the Spirit in my life? Let me say it begins here with this book. Galatians uh, 3.2 tells us that we receive the Holy Spirit by believing what we read in God's Word. And the Holy Spirit works in us as we're saturated in the Word of God. Deep in relationship with Him. That's how our changes and our desires and our appetites for serving others grow and deepen. It's as we fuel up on God's word that we, we get the desire to serve others and we work out the directions in which we might do it. And so fuel up on God's word yourself and cherish and nurture those friendships where you talk about and encourage one another in God's word. And together think about how might we sow less to the flesh and how might we sow more to the spirit. See, true spirituality is corporate and it is relational. For the work of the Holy Spirit is to turn you and me away from our selfish focus on self and sin, living for me and my desires. And he drives us into our church family in committed loving service. And he drives us out into the community and the workplace. And so pray that he would do that more and more. 
and pray that we will be better at encouraging one another in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ is full forgiveness for all sin. But we pray that for us that would not be an excuse to indulge secret sin, but that we would hate sin the way you hate sin. And we pray that we would be a community in which we help one another to walk away from sin and we encourage one another in the goodness of living our lives for you and for others. To your great glory. Amen.